Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. <laughs> Hello. High energy night tonight. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Man Chu. That's me. And our producer and showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur. Sam, it's so great to see you. We love having you on air. Welcome back. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see everybody. Congratulations passing the boards, doing all these amazing things. Congrats to all the wonderful things going on in your life. Uh, you're a star. Who else is a star? Our guest tonight, Dr. Michelle Starr. She uh. is returning to discuss IV fluids <laughs> in kiddos in our patient population at the Cripsiders here at Cashlight. But before we get into that, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our returning guest, Dr. Michelle Starr. For those who need a reminder, after our Neff Madness episode on neonatal AKI, Dr. Starr is an assistant professor of pediatrics with joint appointments in pediatric nephrology and pediatric and adolescent comparative effectiveness research. She received her medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine and completed pediatric residency and chief residency, as well as pediatric nephrology fellowship at the University of Washington slash Seattle Children's Hospital. Dr. Starr's clinical and research interests lie in improving the kidney-related outcomes of children born prematurely, with a particular focus on acute kidney injury in the neonatal ICU. Today, she teaches us about fluids, one of the most prescribed medications in all of pediatrics. She discusses the controversies around the clinical guidelines, why some people may be Team LR versus Team NS, and when to add potassium, glucose, or any other additive on the fluid menu. So without further ado, let's get to it. I hope you guys listen really closely so you don't miss any salient points. Ooh, yeah. I... Salient. Salient. Let's go. <laughs> that was good. Welcome back, Dr. Michelle Starr, for the second appearance on the Cribsider. So great to have you. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited to be back talking about one of my favorite topics, fluids. This topic is one that I think has been very hyped for a lot, at least internally with our team. People are very excited about it. I think it's a really fun topic to talk about. There's a lot of great evidence and data, and I think it's something where there's potential for us all to be doing a better job in that there's some standard practices that are still in existence. But before we get into all this content, we want to remind our listeners about how wonderful you are because you're a big deal. You're you're a star and uh, we are wanting to know you a little better. Can you remind our audience, give us a one-liner to describe yourself and a little bit about you? Absolutely. So I am a 30-something pediatric nephrologist. Um, I am now a mom of three since the last time that we Ooh. recorded. Um, I have newborn twin girls. And I am a peds nephrologist and health service researcher. I focus mainly on neonatal kidney disease, but I'm always happy to talk about fluids, dysnatremias, and pretty much anything nerdy and kidney related. Love it. Who wants to do the first get to know your question? Sam, you got it. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so Michelle, we did ask you about a book last time. So we're wondering if, and I know you're probably very busy um, with, with kids. So maybe one thing that you might be, any sort of immediate consumption, anything that I can now spend my time with now that I've stopped studying and taking the boards. 
So my biggest life hack is audiobooks, and I love audiobooks. Um, whether it's listening to a novel or listening to a kind of practice guideline um, on audiobook, um, it's a great way to spend my time in the car. So I am big on audiobooks right now. The other thing I am loving right now is Taylor Swift's new album, um, along with everybody else in the world. So I'm enjoying that. There's there's a great mashup of the new clinical practice guidelines on fluids and the Taylor Swift album that really they just go well together. It's a great uh, if you play them at the same time and watch uh, uh, the Wizard of Oz that syncs up. It's amazing. Yeah, I was about to say I want to see what the music video looks like for that. <laughs> the Venn diagram of Taylor Swift loving pediatric nephrologists is probably pretty small. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I guess I'm going to ask for more parental hacks. So what's what are some of your favorite ways to get your kid to fall asleep? <laughs> um, patients and pets. Pets. Ooh. Lots of patients and pets. Alliteration. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get that. that? That one's free. You're a true educator. Those are those make it easier to remember. Our great little mnemonic. No, I think hey. you know. I'm I'm big on um, routine and schedule. It's why I'm a peds nephrologist. Um, and my girls are you know having eight month old twins. You got to have a routine and you got to lean into a schedule. So um, those are my actual pieces of advice: is keeping on a schedule and keeping things routine. As an adult, I love that. I think that's uh, uh, even without kids, I like the routine. <laughs> One thing that I love about nephrology is that the nephrologists are so on their game with novel pedagogies, clinical education, using digital resources for teaching. And one of my favorites is the Nef Madness Twitter tournament that so many nephrologists and social media do yourself included. Tell us, without going into detail, because Nef Madness is, is a whole thing that requires an episode to explain, what's one of your favorite things about Nef Madness or your favorite competitor or matchup? What's one thing about Nef Madness that you've loved in the past? So, I mean, I think Nef Madness every year is just an experience into itself. Um, and so for people who aren't familiar, it's March Madness with nephrology terms, basically. Um, my favorite always is the animal house region where we kind of come up with fun animals that have amazing physiology. The reason I like it, in addition to always learning something new that can impress my toddler son, um, is that it's really fun to talk about on rounds because really who wants to talk about human kidneys when you can talk about whale collecting systems or desert rats. It's way more fun. That was one that I remembered was like the the shark, uh, how sharks process sodium or something. And it really is fascinating. <laughs> so uh, I try to incorporate some type of animal or barnyard noise in all my rounds now. And I think uh, that's in the spirit of Neff Madness. So. <laughs> the kids love it. Um, kids love it. Kids and interns <laughs> love it. <laughs> All right. I think we're ready. We've built this up a lot to dive into some content, to start talking about fluids. And Sam, how about you want to kick us off and let's get to Cashlack. All right. I got a case from Cashlack Children's. Um, so Michelle, here we go. We have Ice Otonic. Um, Isotonic is a four-year-old boy presenting to the emergency department with four days of non-bilious, non-bloody emesis and diarrhea, which seems to only be getting worse. It's now occurring upwards of 10 times per day. He was doing well initially for the first two to three days at home, alternating between chicken soup and popsicles. But over the last day, his mom reports he hasn't been able to keep anything down. Unfortunately, he's only urinated twice in the last 24 hours as well. And so on arrival to the emergency department, his vital signs are notable for a temperature of 99.9, a pulse of 135, blood pressure of 85 over 45, and a respiratory rate of 30. So at the minimum, it does seem like ice needs some fluids. Our first question is, how does one choose between bolusing and maintenance fluids? 
just starting with the real easy questions here. <laughs> so, I mean, I I think, you know, where a better place to start before we even think about fluids with this child is to think about, you know, where are we at in terms of their volume status? So that's really when you approach a patient and you're thinking about, do they need fluids? What kind of fluids? And how am I going to deliver the fluids? The first thing you really need to think about is what is your patient's volume status? And I would say based on kind of this presentation, our patient is pretty volume deplete. And there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that. So his vital signs, um, including his tachycardia and his low blood pressure, the history you've got. Um, so all of those things together would suggest that he is in need of some serious volume rehydration and some um, kind of restoration of his volume status. And maybe going on that, can you also talk about are there other data points as far as weight or physical exam findings that might also help support an assessment of volume status? Absolutely. So I think that this is one place where pediatrics can be, you know, our physical exam and kind of our history taking can be incredibly helpful. So in terms of your physical exam findings, you know, we think a lot about, you know, skin turgor, the presence of tears, some of your kind of vital sign markers. But the one that I think is actually the most underrated is patient weight. Because most patients are, most parents are going to know what their child's weight is and what their usual weight is. And weight can be a really good marker um, to give you a sense of where their volume status is. I love that. So let's say, you know, with this patient, we feel like there's increased in turgor, you know, uh, decreased capital refill, decreased weight, tachycardia, all of these signs, and a great history for someone that is unexpectedly volume down. We want to replete them because they're looking, you know, pretty sick. What's your thought going into mind when you see a volume down patient as far as how do we get fluids in this person? What do we what are we thinking of as far as short-term strategy or long-term strategy? What are we picking? How are we getting it in them? Perfect. Yeah. So I think, you know, the first thing you got to think about is that fluids are a medicine. And I'm probably going to say that about 15 or 20 times today because fluids are probably the most common medicine that we prescribe in the hospital. And I think it's helpful to think about them as a medication um, because it is a decision when you're starting them. Same way when you prescribe vancomycin or any other medication, fluids are a med. So I think it's important to think about it and frame it that way. The first decision I would say is, is this a patient that we need to do intravenous fluid replacement or is this a patient where we can think about enteral replacement of therapy? Um, it's, I think, helpful to remember how new IV fluids are. So it's not something that we as physicians have had in our armamentarium forever and always. We've always used the enteral route. And so in a patient with gastroenteritis, you know, you got to think about, is this someone who can take oral rehydration with some medication to help stopping stop their emesis? Um, or is this a patient where you really need IV fluids to kind of get the patient back into homeostasis? So let's start with being less invasive. We're talking about oral rehydration fluids. What what counts as an oral rehydration fluid? Is it Gatorade? Is it sugar-free Gatorade? Is it Gatorade cut in half? Is it, you know, brand name Pedialyte? Like there's like all these things out there. How do we, you know, how do we decide on what's considered oral rehydration fluid? And I think, you know, so, you know, we're starting to get outside the purview of 
nephrology, but I think the important things to remember when you're doing oral rehydration is what you're actually trying to do and what transporter you're trying to activate. And so it's important to remember that these are glucose-sodium co-transporters in the intestines. And so you really do need some glucose. Um, you don't want too much glucose because you don't want to get an osmotic diarrhea and just make everything worse, but you certainly do need some glucose. So, you know, whether it's cut, you know, Pedialyte or cut Gatorade or some other medication kind of similar solution. You want something that has some glucose and something that has some salt in it as well. So let's say for this patient, just given their clinical status, we've decided to do IV fluids. It sounds like they are clinically ill enough that they need something a little bit more immediate and a little bit more aggressive than oral rehydration. So in this patient, I would say that they are volume deplete and I would be putting an IV in and giving them a bolus of fluids. And before we bolus the kid, um, you're putting in an IV, you're in the emergency department. We always come, okay, do we need to get any labs? Um, while we're putting the IV, what can we grab? So what do you think? Do, do we need anything or can we just go ahead with the bolus and hope for the best? So because fluids are a medication, you're going to want to know what you're doing and kind of where you're going with therapy. Some of this will depend a little bit on the severity of the illness and whether you think this patient is going to end up admitted to the hospital or discharged home. Now, if this is a patient that you think just needs a little bit of fluids, kind of get them turned around and they're probably going to discharge home from the emergency department, I'm not sure there's a lot of utility in getting labs. But if this is a patient that you think, okay, this patient's going to be admitted to the hospital, they're going to be on fluids for at least 24 to 48 hours and I want to know where things are going, I would recommend at least getting electrolytes and probably some baseline kidney function just so you know where you're starting at. So sort of going off the, a similar question that I had before about oral rehydration fluids. Like, so you said, let's bolus this kid with fluids. Like, what are we looking at? I know we have lots of large categories of fluids and, you know, um, can you help, help me and our listeners remind us like, what are these types of fluids? I know that broadly there are things like crystalloids versus colloids and all different types within that. Can you um, give us sort of a general layout about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, really there's a, you know, there's kind of a couple of different categories, right? So we have crystalloids versus colloids. And then you have to think about your tonicity of your fluids kind of within that um, crystalloid category. So most of the time we're talking about rehydrating patients with crystalloid fluids and we're thinking about what is the tonicity of the fluids that we're going to do. And so most of the time we're thinking about rehydrating with isotonic. So remember, tonicity is basically how the fluid compares to the kind of osmolality and the osmolarity of your serum. And so really what we're trying to do is to match that um, when we're providing therapy as a bolus. And so one of the things that I think comes up a lot practically in, in the hospital setting is the two most commonly used fluids. I think we are typically um, NS, normal saline, or LR, lactated ringers. Can you talk a little bit about the difference uh, between the two and maybe if they differ from other of the things like plasmolite or other solutions that people might see in the hospital? Yeah, so I think that this is an area where there's growing evidence, but a lot of the evidence is really contradictory and very confusing. And it's also a place where pediatrics really honestly is lagging quite a bit behind adult medicine when it comes to both the number and the quality of the studies that we have. And so we tend to lean pretty heavily on adult medicine and adult studies when we're kind of trying to decide how to volume resuscitate and also when we think about ongoing fluid management of these kids. 
So when we think about different composition of fluids, particularly when it comes to bolus, the mainstay of therapy and what you know historically has been the fluid of choice is normal saline. And normal saline is, I would say, not a physiologic normal solution. And that's because it's quite acidotic, it has a very low pH, and it has a pretty high serum sodium. So normal saline has 154 milliequivalents per liter of sodium, and it's matched with 154 milliequivalents of chloride. And that means it's a pretty acidic solution. And how does that compare with lactated ringers? So LR is um, has a lower serum sodium, the interesting thing and a lot of the, you know, the reason that we all have to take chemistry in medical school is um, so that we can think a little bit about the composition of fluids and how you actually <laughs> how you actually kind of think about what's in a bag of fluids. And you can't actually put bicarb in a bag. So if you put bicarb in a bag, the kind of IV fluid bags, it will actually corrode through it. So if you give bicarb, it actually has to be stored in a glass vial. And so all of the bases that are given in IV fluids are not truly bicarb, they're bicarb equivalents. And so LR is lactate is actually the the kind of bicarbonate equivalent that is given in lactated ringers. So I mean, I think the other thing to think about in terms of LR is so the serum sodium is different. It has quite a bit of lactate in it, which is your buffering component and your base. And it also has some potassium in it, which is one of the pieces that I think actually scares people off from using lactated ringers, but is, I actually think, a huge benefit because it has less kind of acidic component and it actually has some potassium in it as well. So it actually provides a lot of benefits. Now, another argument I've heard about uh, people not wanting to use LR is that they're worried, oh, you know, their lactate is high and I'm giving them lactated ringers. Can you uh, talk a little bit to that myth? Yeah, so I think there's there's two things I hear a bit. So I hear a lot about well, their lactate's high um, in the setting of their you know hypoperfusion, um, and also I don't want them to get hyperkalemic because the nephrologist will get angry at me. So I think the first thing is the you know the lactate. It's not a myth, right? Like there is lactate in it, but as long as someone's liver is functioning, they're going to be able to break it down, and pretty quickly you're going to have bicarbonate as the patient is able to metabolize it. So as long as they don't have acute liver failure, you're going to be in a pretty good place um, in terms of having good buffering capacity. Um, the other thing I hear quite commonly and kind of the one of the I would call this one a myth about lactated ringers is that lactated ringers, because it has potassium and it can cause hyperkalemia. And actually by you know giving less acidic fluids, you actually keep the potassium in cells. And so there's good studies in adults that patients who get LR actually have lower rates of hyperkalemia because they have less acidosis and less acidemia. And so they keep their potassium in cells instead of coming it come out of cells. I actually love that point. Because uh, my, my piece that my understanding was that LR has about four milliequivalents of potassium for an entire liter. Um, and so if you really divide that up by the amount of fluid that we're giving a child, especially a young child, it's like, it seems like nothing to me. Um, so that was kind of my argument, but this argument seems even better. So you've alluded to this a couple of times. You keep on talking about acidity. And I think this is something that, um, you know, and, and we've been talking about adult literature a lot. I know in adult literature, we had like the salted trial, we had the smart trial, and more, more recently we had like the, the plus study. 
You know, and some of them have varying degrees of saying, well, you know, we, we have less AKI in our LR because they're not as acidic as our quote unquote abnormal saline. Can you speak to a little bit about that and how that maybe relates to some of the other fluids that are out there like plasmalite? Yeah. So, and I think, you know, so we are in a situation where you have a lot of options and some of this will be dependent on the place in which you're practicing, depending on the institution you're training in and what fluids are available. I think the short answer is that in most patients, we are not giving enough fluids that it's really going to make a significant difference in terms of their balance. This is different in a patient who is getting 80 or 100 mils per kilo and then going to the ICU and continuing to get lots and lots of fluids. But most of the time, these fluids you're giving are not going to make a really significant contribution to their kind of overall milieu. That being said, it is, you know, an opportunity to really kind of volume resuscitate someone and start them their recovery in a really good place. So what do you have as options for IV fluids? You can give them normal saline. You can give them LR. You can give them what we call a balanced solution. So a balanced solution is a more physiologic, for lack of a better term, fluid, which has kind of a little bit more normal pH and a little bit more of a balanced approach when it comes to your bicarbonate and your other kind of contributions. The problem with normal saline, especially when you give it in really, really high amounts, is that chloride. So remember I said it has 154 milliequivalents of chloride, and chloride's a weak acid. So what happens over time is that you become more and more acidemic, especially if you're giving large, large volumes of normal saline. Great. So maybe just to summarize, it sounds like, you know, we're basing some of this on the adult literature, but the LR is a little less acidic. It has less of the high concentration of sodium. There's some clinical trials, at least in adults, that suggest in high volume resuscitations, there's clinical benefits. So it kind of seems like we're team LR for the most part. But to your point, it really only matters when we're talking about large volume resuscitation. And so not to stress about it or make the intern feel silly when they started NS instead of LR, that the states are not that high in kind of the small dose of the the fluid medicine. Is that fair to say? I think that's a perfect kind of summary of it. I think the first bolus is usually, in my clinical practice, the first bolus is usually normal saline. Sometimes that second bolus can be normal saline. But then if you're continuing to give fluid, you really need to think about, am I giving them too much chloride? Am I giving them fluids that are too hypertonic? Do I need to think about changing my fluid strategy and approach? Beautiful. So I think this is a great time to continue on with the case. And so Sam, you want to keep us going? Yes. Um, so Ice receives two 20 milliliter per kilo boluses. I didn't specify which one. His heart rate improves to 110. Blood pressure increases to 95 over 55. And he's admitted to the pediatric hospital service. Although his vital signs have improved, Ice continues to vomit anything he eats and is starting to refuse any and all food or drink despite his parents' best effort. So again, returning to our questions on fluids, when should we be ordering maintenance fluids in kids? Easy question, Sam. Easy questions. So I think, <laughs> um, you know, I think that this is a hard one because when you think about the choice of starting IV fluids, it can be really challenging. I tend to think about this in terms of where is the patient's volume status and where do I want them to go? So I really only think about maintenance fluids when I get a patient back to euvolemic. So really, my general approach is to use boluses to get a patient back to euvolemia and then use maintenance to kind of keep them where they're at. And I think it's important to note that maintenance 
really is a concept that only works for healthy children with normal kidney function. And so it's important to think about the caveats when we're doing our calculations and to remember that there's a lot of assumptions that we make when we think about the maintenance fluids and maintenance calculations. So you said uh, you would consider, you'll stop your boluses and consider going to maintenance when they've reached euvolemia. How do we decide they're euvolemic? I, I feel like no two people can ever agree, especially if they're a cardiologist and a nephrologist in the same room. I think the tide goes to the nephrologist. And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you want to use your same kind of indicators you were looking at volume status when this patient was in the emergency department, right? You want to look at your heart rate. You should see your heart rate start coming back down to a normal range. You should see your blood pressure starting to normalize as well. You also have a sense probably of where this patient was and what their volume deficit is. This is the really nice thing about the metric system, right? So if a patient's 1.5 kilos down, you probably have about 1.5 liters of volume resuscitation you need to give them to get them back to euvolemia. Uh, one thing I, I love that you mentioned that fluids are a form of medicine. And I think one of the most joyful moments in pediatrics is giving a child with viral gastroenteritis a bolus of fluids because it is the quickest perking up often of this very tired child to becoming often a fussy but much more active child. And so when you mention the calculations used for maintenance fluids, can you talk a little bit about where that calculation comes from, what are the factors, and how do we determine what maintenance fluid should be if someone's uvolemic but is not tolerating PO like our friend Ice here? So this is when we have to do a little bit of diving into the history books and talk a little bit about how we came up with 421 and what Holiday Seeger actually did. And so this is a little bit of a journey. So before, like we talked about, fluids have not been along, around that long. And so the assumptions about fluids are actually pretty recent. So the adult rates of IV fluids that are needed to maintain euvolemia were published in JAMA in the 1940s. And in 1957, Holiday and Seeger, who were pediatric nephrologists, came up with this kind of way of equating the adult rate of maintenance for body surface area. So I think there's this misconception that what Holiday Seeger did was actual experiments or actual clinical trials. Really what they did was a kind of math extension of the adult studies to say, how do we equate what we're doing in adults for body surface area so that we can give similar amounts of fluids to pediatrician or to pediatric patients? And this 421, is that something that we should be using? It sounds like if this is a adopted study based on a 1940 study that maybe we shouldn't be putting too much stock in it. And what are your thoughts? Yeah. How is that best put into practice? So I love Holiday Seeger. They actually came up with this when um, they were, uh, one of them was here at Indiana University. So I am a little bit partial to them and their work. Um, that being said, I think it's a really good starting place. So the math holds and it's a really good kind of approximation of and of what you need to maintain euvolemia. I just think it's important to remember that it's extraction based on an assumption, and it truly only works in patients with normal renal function that have otherwise intact physiology. So it's, I think, a reasonable starting place, but like anything we do, you start something and then you monitor the response and then you make your adjustment as needed. 
So um, it, it's it's been a little while since I've done inpatient pediatrics. Um, can you remind me what the four two one rule actually is? I just don't remember. <laughs> so the four two one is the kind of the calculations for the amount of fluids you give per kilo, and so it's four um, cc's uh, per kilo per hour for the first ten kilos, and then two per hour for the next 10 kilos, and then one per kilo per hour after that. So that might have sounded super confusing. So for example, a 30 kilo patient will get four cc's per kilo for the first 10, so 40 mils per hour, and then 20 for the next 10, so 60, and then 10 more. So their fluid rate would be 70 mils per hour. Excellent. Thanks for reminding me. So one of my always concerns, especially about practicing inpatient is what happens if I do something wrong? So, you know, so what happens if we accidentally overshoot? You know, we talked about, we do the four, two, one rule to start. And what happens if I give them too much? You know, I'm always thinking about, oh my goodness, did I do this exactly right? Um, and so, yeah. So what happens if I give them too much? We'll start with that. And then, um, and then I have some follow-up questions afterwards. So rest assured, the smartest kidney and the smartest nephrologist are not even in the same ballpark. The kidney is so incredibly smart that it puts the rest of us to shame. And so most of the time, things are going to be totally fine whether you give the patient 100 cc's an hour or 150 cc's an hour because their kidneys are going to be able to deal with it. So really what we're doing and what we're trying to avoid is for that 5% of patients that do not have the renal function to excrete that large amount of fluid or sodium or potassium to avoid getting that group of patients in trouble. But most of the times, rest assured, your kidneys are going to be able to handle whatever fluids we throw at them. And so it's really good that we did get that BMP as we got the kid admitted. Um, so we know what their, we know what their GFR is. And so my question is there, so what GFR would you start to be worried about, about saying, now I'm going to be worried about volume overload? So, you know, I think a lot of times when you get labs, you're going to actually see a BUN and a creatinine that are quite high. And that probably actually is a good thing. So that may not truly reflect intrinsic kidney function. That may represent a pre-renal azotemic state. And so one of my mentors used to call that not acute renal failure, but acute renal success because the kidneys are actually doing what they're supposed to. And so that BUN and creatinine elevation may actually be reflective of kind of their overall volume depletion state and not any underlying kidney dysfunction. So to the point, I don't know how much stock you can truly put in that abnormal BUN and creatinine that you drew before the patient was volume resuscitated. If it's abnormal, you're certainly going to want to check and make sure that it is normalized. Um, but the patient starting to pee, the patient perking up and starting to feel better are all probably just as good markers that your renal function and your renal perfusion is starting to improve as well. So it sounds like it would take me a lot of fluids to really get someone to, to have some significant volume overload. Yes. So in a normal healthy child with normal lungs, you're going to have to get them at least 10 to 15% volume overloaded where you're going to start seeing any kind of clinical manifestations. And with normal functioning kidneys, it's going to be really hard to get you there. And can we uh, – nephrologists love to talk about sodium. And I think with maintenance fluids, this is what's something that comes up a lot in part because I even remember as a resident at one point being taught – that for maintenance fluids, we should use um, hypotonic fluids like half normal saline to avoid the risk of hypernatremia from the elevated sodium concentration, as you mentioned, in normal saline. Um, 
And now it seems like there's some concerns with using hypotonic fluids causing hyponatremia. Can you talk about a little bit when we're choosing maintenance fluids, what is it based on sodium? What kind of goes into this decision and how does how does sodium play a role in that? Oh, this is like one of my favorite questions and my favorite things to talk about. So it's challenging. And I think oftentimes this is one of the first orders that an intern or a resident writes. And, you know, your, your senior says to your attending says to you, just throw them on fluids, throw them on maintenance fluids and tuck them in. And then you're like, well, which fluids? Which rates? Do I add potassium? Do I not add potassium? Do they need glucose? Do they not need glucose? What rate do I do? And there's about a thousand different decisions that go into the choice of actual maintenance fluids. Um, and it can be somewhat paralyzing. So let's start with sodium content and the kind of composition of fluids, and then we can talk about the other components as well. So I'll point out that the um, clinical practice guidelines, um, which are endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, recommend choosing normal saline. They make that choice um, for patients. The inclusion ranges are one month to 18 years for ongoing maintenance therapy. And they do that to avoid hyponatremia. It's a pretty strong, pretty sweeping recommendation based on literature that I think is decent, but not strong enough to make that sweeping of a statement. And so my approach actually is to be a little bit more individualized um, in terms of what I think a patient's risk for hyponatremia or really their risk of dysnatremia, so either hyponatremia or hypernatremia, and then decide a maintenance starting therapy. And then my kind of decision to change things is based on labs and follow-up studies as we go. So for example, in the patient that we just admitted, I would say that this is a patient who is at mild to moderate risk of developing dysnatremias, right? We don't know their electrolytes coming in because we said, well, we'll wait and see, but they're at what I would call kind of mild to moderate risk. Now, why are patients at risk of hyponatremia when they come in? So this is when we get to talk about ADH and people start sweating a little bit, but really it's totally fine. So ADH is a fight or flight response. So if you just think about ADH and vasopressin, which are the same thing as kind of a fight or flight response, it tells you what it does. Because when you are critically ill, running from someone, you don't want to have to stop and pee. And so what ADH does is it basically improves your concentration. It improves your reabsorption of water. And in the correct clinical setting, depending on what fluids you're getting, it can kind of assist with the development of hyponatremia. And so that's the reason the guidelines are written and developed the way they are, is to decrease the risk of patients developing clinically significant hyponatremia. And can I ask, just to clarify, the guideline recommends normal saline as opposed to half normal saline because of that isotonicity to avoid hyponatremia, which is at higher risk with the ADH and vasopressin secretion when someone's sick or in a hospital setting. Right. right. And yeah, and the, what the authors of the guideline would say is that basically children admitted to the hospital are at very high risk of, I wouldn't even call it SIADH because it's kind of appropriate release of ADH, right? It's a physiologic stress response to pain vomiting, respiratory illness, these things all increase your ADH secretion. So these patients do all truly have risks of excess ADH and hyponatremia, but there is also risks of giving them normal saline. And so, you know, a lot of these studies that the clinical practice guideline are based on looked at hyponatremia 
But they didn't look at the kind of corollaries on the other side. So they didn't look at hypernatremia. They didn't look at risk of hypertension. And then they really didn't look at some of these other kind of indicators that the adult studies are starting to look at. So kidney dysfunction, acidosis, and some of the other kind of markers like length of stay and things like that. And so while there are risks on both sides, I, as kind of my approach, will usually start patients on half normal saline as their maintenance therapy, as long as I have a good plan to monitor and to follow up how they're doing. And I, coming as a MedPeds person, feel very team LR. And when we talk about the decreased risk of acidosis, we talk about you know the decreased uh, possible clinical benefits. We talk about how it actually has a less concentrated sodium. Why is that not kind of the go-to for nephrologists, and or is that the future? Like, why why aren't we all team LR? I think some of it is just training and the way that people, you know, people do things that they're familiar with. Um, and so I think that there, are, especially in the setting of clinical practice guidelines that say this is the way that we should approach fluid therapy, I think that there is just a lot of kind of momentum on team abnormal saline. Mm. Um, I tend to use D5LR or D5 half normal saline um, or plasma light as my ongoing kind of maintenance fluid for my patients. And the caveat of that is a lot of my patients have abnormal renal function. Um, but even when I'm helping take care of a patient with a non-renal issue, those are my go-to fluid choices for some of those same reasons. Now you just added a whole nother thing into the mix. You said D5. Now we're, we're, we're making things a little more complex now. What, what's going on with the D, with the dextrose? Yeah. So we've talked a little bit um, about hyponatremia, hypernatremia, dysnatremia risks. We can talk a little bit about glucose and then we should make sure we talk about potassium as well because that's really one of those things that I think throws a little bit of a wrench at everything as well. Uh, before we jump on to um, to glucose, which is absolutely a thing we need to talk about, I just had a few more questions about the maintenance fluid itself. I was just thinking, um, we just started talking about how good LR is to bolus, and we're doing maintenance fluids, and we're trying to decide what to do. Um, you know, why do you think also that we do a lot of maintenance, not just intermittent bolusing? So, you know, it's a really good question, and in some ways, it might be more physiologic, right? Like we don't constantly have fluid dripping into our mouths at all times, right? We tend to um, we tend to consume fluids enterally in more of a bolus sort of situation. It honestly probably would be more physiologic. I think when patients are in the hospital, it's probably just a little bit more practical and doesn't require repeated assessments. It does allow me to talk about one of my big nephrology pet peeves, which is multiples of maintenance. I have strong feelings here, and I really think that patients should never be prescribed multiples of maintenance because either a patient is euvolemic or they're not. If you don't have a patient euvolemic, you bolus them until they're euvolemic and then you give them maintenance. Multiples of maintenance fluids, just a way to get yourself in trouble and get a patient fluid overloaded. One maybe quick thing too, to your point, Sam, that I ha I remember having calls as an attending where the patient wanted to move around or go to somewhere and when they have the IV pole, it's kind of like a liquid handcuffs and there's like, can we give them off? Can we get them off maintenance fluids for an hour? And I think the fear is like, no, then he'll get dehydrated. And um, to your point of, you know, bolusing to euvolemia, it's okay to, to miss a couple hours of maintenance fluids if it means, you know, getting out of bed. And I think the other thing that I often um, 
encourage my residents to think about is whether a patient truly needs IV fluids. So remember, we all go to sleep and we don't get IV fluids overnight and we are all okay when we wake up in the morning. Um, and so often when we have a patient who's NPO for a procedure overnight in the hospital, the question isn't what fluids should we be running. It's, the question is, do they need IV fluids overnight? And then I actually wanted to circle back around just to one thing, make sure I understood this right. So um, the kids who are at risk for hyponatremia. Um, so we talked about ADH being on, and when ADH is on, that's obviously going to bring in water and uh, and drive your uh, your total sodium down. Um, when I think of that, I always think of hypotensive patients. Um, once they're euvolemic, when we bolus them, how long do you think it takes them to essentially turn that extra round of ADH off? Or is the fact that they're so inflamed with whatever their, their illness is, is that enough to uh, to keep it going? It's a really good question. So we can see this, you know, it it, it depends, I think, on the severity of their illness. Um, so in critically ill, so ICU patients, that kind of perturbed ADH state can last quite a period of time, um, especially while they're kind of having these ongoing stressors. So mechanical ventilation, respiratory distress, all of those pieces can continue for a period of time. But in a kind of less critically ill patient, their ADH response is probably starting to slow down just about the time you're starting to think about, do I need this patient still need to be on IV fluids? And so going back to the, you know, determining the maintenance fluids, there's all these great additives on the the fluid salad bar of, of glucose, potassium, uh, phosphate. Let's go back. You had mentioned D5 or D10. Uh, what's the story with glucose and IV fluids? When... Should we be adding glucose? Should we be adding glucose? How much? Let's let's talk about glucose and water. Yeah. So, you know, I think in some ways nephrologists are sometimes IV fluid sommeliers, right? Like we're trying to make decisions about like, you know, what the right combination of things are. Um, you know, some of this just really kind of gets to how long do you think this patient's going to be on IV fluids? And the reality is if this is a short-term need, you probably don't need to get too fancy with the composition of fluids. Really, you just want to kind of keep them in a good place and do it as safely as possible and stop your therapy as quickly as you can. Now, in a patient that's going to have prolonged NPO and they're going to be on IV fluids for a period of time, I think glucose is something really to think about in terms of avoiding a catabolic state. So when you think about a patient who's NPO, they certainly need dextrose in order to keep them away from being catabolic. Um, D5 is not a lot of dextrose, and it's certainly not enough to provide your daily glucose needs or to prevent you from truly flipping over into a catabolic state. So in patients that have been NPO or going to be on IV fluids for more than a couple of days, it's important to think about higher GIRs or higher glucose infusions or more kind of parenteral nutrition as well. Um, But in short-term patients who are going to be IV fluids for a period of time before you reintroduce feeds, D5 or even in smaller patients, D10 might be reasonable to provide about 20 to 25% of their estimated caloric needs. And just to give some super practical pieces for our listeners. So when we take away from this talk, we'll be like, all right, I'm going to do these things. Um, so, you know, could you give us, is it easy to give us like an hour or a number of days to say, hey, this is how long I would do this before I need to put this in the fluids? Like, is it, are you saying as a nephrologist, like if you're not on an IV fluids for all of six hours, it's fine, but anything past 36 hours we should be worried about? I'm just curious if we can get something that I can take to the bank. <laughs> So it depends a little bit on the age of the child as well. So in smaller kids, you're not going to want to have them off of fluids with glucose for probably more than 
six to eight hours. Um, so especially in babies, you're certainly not going to want to have them off of dextrose containing fluids for a period of time. Now in older teenagers, we're talking a day, maybe even 36 hours, where it's completely reasonable just to have them on LR without any dextrose or half normal saline without any dextrose. Um, but, you know, a patient that's going to be NPO for a period of several days, you're going to want to be adding dextrose to the fluids. And then my usual kind of point where I start thinking about, do I need to think about added nutrition? So enteral or parenteral nutrition is about three days. Um, so, you know, four to six hours, you need to think about glucose in small kids, 24 hours in older kids, and then three days you need to think about better caloric support for patients who are on NPO. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. And so as far as other things we can add, the next one on the list of the menu is is potassium or I think the ED, sometimes they would call it the banana bag because bananas have potassium. Who should we be considering for potassium and aren't we terrified that we're going to give them hyperkalemia? So you should always be a little terrified because – I'm terrified. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's always better to be thinking about the possible complications of something you're prescribing than not to consider it at all. And so because prescribing fluids are just like everything else we do in the hospital, you have to think about your upside and you have to think about the risks as well. Um, so, you know, yes, you should think about it. Um, but hypokalemia is also not good for someone who's critically ill, especially for this patient who has ongoing vomiting. They're probably hypokalemic and that might be one of the reasons that they're not feeling well. So I think about adding potassium to fluids in a patient that I know has moderate to good renal function um, and normal to low potassium. So I won't add potassium or I wouldn't recommend adding potassium to fluids without basic labs. Um, and it's certainly something that if you have a patient who is on potassium-containing fluids, it's going to be something that you want to monitor with, I would say, at least daily labs. And you mentioned, um, you know, mild to moderate uh, or, or at least good to, to moderate kidney function. Again, just to be a little bit practical, what do you think of a GFR that is bad kidney function or the, or the line that we should be like, this is not good and we should be paying more attention? So any patient with a baseline kidney function or abnormality in their kidney function. So any patient with CKD, um, you should be thinking about, do you truly want to add any potassium to their fluids without speaking to a nephrologist? But in a patient who, um, you know, has a normal GFR, so a GFR north of 60, it's very reasonable to add potassium to fluids um, as long as you have a plan to monitor. Remember, we're talking about 20 milliequivalents of fluid per liter. So patients are actually truly not getting that much potassium over a period of hours. It seems like a big number, um, but when you think about it in terms of their hourly ongoing fluid requirement, it's not a huge amount. So as long as you have a plan to monitor and follow it up, um, then I think it's very reasonable to include potassium in your fluids. One thing I, that you had mentioned too that I, I think has come up a lot for me on inpatient is that if you get a BMP at the beginning and the creatinine is elevated, the calculated GFR that pops up in that BMP is, is not their baseline GFR. They are not chronic kidney disease. So for those patients that have an elevated creatinine, presumably because of this pre-renal azotemia, we do not need to worry as much about consequences of hyperkalemia as we resuscitate them. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, and I think you know the the important point to remember about that calculated GFR is that remember that's based on kind of just a snapshot in time. And so the analogy I tend to use that I think I used last time I was talking to you guys as well is that um, you know a creatinine is just really a snapshot in time. And so if you were to take a picture, if I were to throw a ball up in the air and you were to take a picture of that ball, you wouldn't know whether it was on its way up at the top of its peak or on its way back down. And it's the same exact thing when we think about a creatinine. So the patient that you just talked about who has an elevated creatinine, who's now gotten volume resuscitated, their creatinine is probably better. And you can tell that clinically because their vital signs are probably better. My bet is that they started peeing um, and they probably are now normalized their creatinine in the 12 to 24 hours since you checked that BNP. Now, being the type A nephrologist that I am, I probably would recheck a BNP to make sure it's normalized, um, but that's just me. Um, but I think that in a patient where you really think that this is in the setting of volume depletion, pre-renal azotemia, I would give that patient potassium um, as long as they are peeing and you otherwise are monitoring their fluid balance. I was just say maybe following up on that of checking the the creatinine and also wanting to monitor the potassium. When we have a patient who is on maintenance fluids, um, should we be regularly checking BMPs? Are there indications for when we should be doing a follow up BMP, or are there is there any frequency that you think? I mean, do, does a does a maintenance fluid with potassium need daily BMPs, or how often should we be checking these electrolytes? So I would say in a sick patient who is on a therapy that might cause either dysnatremias or hyperkalemia or other electrolyte woes, um, I would recommend at least checking daily BNPs. Um, and that's because you really want to be checking the efficacy of your therapy and you want to be changing your therapy if you needed to. So we talked about how these patients all have risks of increased ADH. If you start to see a serum sodium going down, 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 you might change your therapy. If you start to see the serum potassium start going up, 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 or the creatinine go up, 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 you're going to change your therapy as well. So I do think in addition to kind of monitoring a patient, their kind of clinical response, their vital sign changes daily weights and ins and outs, you're also going to want to be getting BNPs to see where you're going in terms of your electrolytes. And is 20 mil equivalents the uh, the answer for potassium and anything else? Should that be, um, should that be given just as a PO supplement? So you certainly can. I don't know if you've ever tried um, oral potassium supplementation, um, especially in a patient with gastroenteritis. It, it may not go super well. Um, so I think that giving, you know, 20 milliequivalents per liter in IV fluids is a very reasonable way to approach this. But yes, using the gut um, over IV fluids, especially when it comes to potassium, is probably a safer alternative as well. And then we've also talked about LR being a possible maintenance, and we also talked about the risk and how scared we are about adding potassium to LR, which we shouldn't be at all. But I just want to confirm with you that that could be okay. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I really like using fluids off the shelf. So I think using potassiums that are prescribed and delivered as mixed is a safer way than adding things to bags. And so in my practice, I will prescribe things that um, I don't have to 
do additives. Um, and so I often will reach for LR if I want to give potassium to a patient as opposed to adding potassium to a bag of half normal saline. One of the things we talked about of being aware for these dysnatremias, um, especially as people that have chronic kidney disease or have abnormal renal function. And so in this case, isotonic is four years old, but in your neck of the woods, when especially the kiddos are um, neonatal or smaller, less than that one month to 18 year range that you mentioned for the guidelines, how does that affect our management? If if ICE were less than 28 days old, if he's a two-week-old newborn, does that change our fluid selection? And maybe can you talk about why? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll point out that the guidelines say and recommend normal saline pretty much all the way down to even those very, very small babies. Um, I would argue that their physiology is quite different and their renal concentrating abilities are quite different as well. And so babies have the ability to excrete, or they have less ability to excrete sodium load, and they also have less concentration ability. And so when we start getting in these smaller kiddos, they actually can tolerate a much lower sodium content in their fluids more successfully. And so in kids who are young, I usually will use half normal saline. Um, in the neonates, you'll see them start using quarter. I don't have a lot of comfort with quarter normal saline and so tend to stick with half normal saline even for the smallest of babies. Um, but if you're practicing in a neonatal ICU, you'll start seeing people reach for those lower tonicity fluids because of babies' concentrating abilities in their kidneys. And then why do some people put 10 milliequivalents of potassium in the babies? Because we know it's per liter. So they're obviously going to get less total because of their size. So um, so why do people do that? Because they're scared of potassium. This is a great question. <laughs> so um, it gets back a little bit to um, just some of what we know about uh, neonatal renal physiology. So neonates mature the distal part of their tubule slowly. And so their sodium-potassium transporters um, are really immature. And so they have a decreased ability to secrete potassium. And so that's why if you look at your, you know, handbooks in terms of normal potassiums, the potassium that is kind of considered normal in Harriet Lane is actually much higher in babies. Um, and so that's because they have immature distal tubular function and they hold on to potassium a little bit better. So that is, I think, historically why we give less potassium to babies, um, because we know they're able to get rid of it a little bit less effectively than older kids. And do you think that, you know, and this is a good question for, you know, across the board for these, like, do you think it's just us being scared or do we have evidence for some of these things? And it's okay for us being scared right now. You know, they'll probably have evidence coming out in the future. I think we, you know, we have evidence that baby kidneys are not as good at excreting potassium. Um, so they certainly can get themselves into trouble a little bit quicker. We also know that babies have intrinsically lower GFRs. And so they just have worse kidney function. Um, and so if you're going to err in terms of the amount of anything you give to a baby, you always want to err on the lower side because you just do not know what their kidney function is going to do. And so Let's say that isotonic is doing better. He's starting to take a little bit by mouth, still not at 100%, but mom is sick to the hospital. She's like, when can we get out of here? 
when do you start thinking about discontinuing IV fluids? And I'd be very curious if you have seen or of or your opinion on the concept of cutting maintenance fluids in half or stopping them to try to increase thirst so that the kid will drink more. Is that a thing? How do, let's start discharge planning. How do we get this kid off the IV fluids and does cutting them in half help him drink more or is that mythical garbage? So this is where I think we we start leaving the the realms of even shaky literature and really get into what do we just do clinically. Um, and so this is one where I would say there's probably not much evidence or literature to back up what we do. Um, but my clinical practice is not to just like decrease maintenance by a little bit, but to stop it. Because I really believe that, you know, you know, you got to have that osmotic drive um, and you really have to have that thirst drive. And if you're just pouring fluid into someone's veins, that's not a very physiological way to consume any fluids. Um, and so you're not going to have a thirst response. You're not going to have any drive to drink. And so um, my usual approach is just turn off the IV fluids and see what they do. So you, you're of the opinion, not methodological garbage, expert opinion, turn it off, get the osmotic drive, get them drinking. Love it. I mean, if... If you think about it, you know, we, it's, it's not very normal to shove an IV in someone's totally. vein and just pour fluids in there continuously. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense to me if you, if you want someone to get back to a more physiologic space to just stop that kind of abnormal process. There's no data, I would say, to support that. I doubt that anybody has done a study on the most successful way to wean IV fluids. Um, and, you know, I think certainly there is, there, there's a lot of people who worry about taking someone who's been off I, on IV fluids for days and days and days off. But I always remind people that when they sleep at night, they're not on IV fluids. And so it's very reasonable to give someone time without fluids constantly dripping into them and see what they can do. Do you know of any like major disparities, especially when, you know, one thing that we talk about often with our episodes is, you know, racial disparities and, and how um, our topic uh, applies to, to that, to that group. Um, do you, do you see anything in this in, ter- in regards to racial disparities in terms of access to fluids? So, you know, I think that one of the things in thinking about this question is it's really just access to fluids in general. Um, you know, this isn't so much an, an access here in the United States issue, but there are certainly places where access to IV fluids is just not something that is um, available. Um, and so there's a lot of places where it's just not even part of the kind of delivery of care. I will say that there is actually a sex difference in terms of your risk of ADH release. Um, and so girls are actually at much higher risk of SIADH and excess ADH than boys. Um, this risk really seems to do with sex hormones and really comes out kind of in that prepubertal to pubertal transition. Um, and so especially if you have a teenage patient that is female, it's worth thinking about them as a slightly higher risk of developing excess ADH and developing hyponatremia in the setting of IV fluids. That's one of the best clinical pearls from the health disparities. Uh, that's fascinating. Oh wow, amazing. I, I do have some like wrap-up questions for, for myself yeah. because, you know, my, as I said before, my biggest concern is 
well, and I guess it's wrong to say that, but my way do have a concern that I'm going to mess up. And um, just as just as we all do. And I think it's really reasonable to say, how hard is it to mess up with this case? How good are kids kidneys? And even if I choose the wrong thing, is this life or death? You know, that type of question. Yeah. So I think, you know, the the framing of it is that as long as you're thinking about it, and you're making a choice and you're reassessing your choice, you're not going to get yourself into trouble. So really, I think where people get in trouble with IV fluids is being a little bit too dogmatic with a kind of one-size-fits-all approach and then not reassessing as they go. The most important thing when you pick an IV fluid, particularly when it comes to maintenance fluid, but this also goes when you're bolusing a patient and trying to get them to euvolemia, is you have to make an intervention and you have to reassess. And so as long as you are making that kind of feedback loop of reassessing and then making a new decision if you need to, you're not going to get yourself in trouble because your patient is going to give you signs if they're not tolerating the therapy. And you know, what's classic all the time is you're like, oh, I'd like to give some LR, but are you sure, you know, we have this normal saline here and, you know, the LR is either going to take three hours to come up or shipped. Yeah. Or this is just, we just don't do this on this floor. You know, um, so, you know, when it comes to that as well, is it okay? You kind of mentioned this in the beginning. It's okay to give that first bolus, you know, kind of as that normal saline. And then as you noticed, you're going to give me, is that still the theme? Like, when you're doing something immediately for just a short amount of time, you can do whatever you want. And then as time goes on, you should really be honing in on what we just talked about. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of those places where I think it's good for trainees and people who um, are are thinking about these things to ask the question of why. Um, because some of these are just, you know, this is the way it's been. This is the fluid we always give on this floor. But the evidence has changed. Um, and I think our clinical practices should change along with it. So, you know, there, there are a lot of places that LR is not stocked um, on certain floors of the hospital. It's just stocked on the surgical floors. It's not stocked on the medical floors. But if you can ask why and make a good argument for why you think your patient actually would benefit from that therapy, people will listen. Um, and especially if you get your friendly nephrologist on board um, and talk about the benefit of giving them less chloride, less acidic solutions, um, then you might start to make some headway there as well. I have this wonderful image in my head of Sam Mazur with students and trainees all around him, him explaining the patho or the physiology of why D10LR is perfect for the patient. And then a nurse saying, all we have is NS and him saying, yeah, that's fine, whatever. I, I think, you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, we all try, we're all trying to do the right things for patients. We're all trying to give them the fluid that they need. Um, but their kidneys are really smart. And nine times out of 10, the kidney's gonna figure it out no matter what fluid you give them. Um, really what we're trying to do is figure out who that one in 10 that actually needs the right fluid and the fluid that's slightly different and avoid making a mistake in that patient. Um, and so as long as you have your attention up on who are those patients that I really need to watch out for? Who are those patients who might get in trouble? And what am I going to do to monitor and make sure they don't do something that they shouldn't? You're going to be fine. And one more clinical pearl that I remember, and we could we could take this out if 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 this was mis, me misunderstanding uh, misremembering. But from last episode, you had mentioned something about matching urine sodiums, um, and I was just curious of what that was and what you meant by it. 
Yeah. So um, I love using um, urine sodium as kind of a marker of what the patient is excreting. Um, And so I tend to use this in patients where they're either having um, like a post-kidney injury diuresis or they're having a large amount of output. And so situations I see this in is a lot of patients with acute kidney injury that are then recovering. Our post-transplant patients do this quite a bit. Any urologic patient um, or patients who have just gotten a lot of fluid. And so what you can do clinically, if you're trying to figure out what fluid a patient needs, is check a urine sodium and then match your fluid um, to that. And so what that means is that, you know, if a patient has a urine sodium of 70 milliequivalents, then you can give them half normal saline, which is 77 milliequivalents, and that's going to be just about what they're peeing out. So if their serum sodium is where you want it to be and you want to maintain it, then you can give them basically what they're peeing out back in IV fluid form. Um, So I use this a lot in kind of like our post- ATN diuresis patients or post-obstructive diuresis patients uh, just to keep a patient in balance and not let them kind of pee off all of their sodium. And what happens when their sodium is low? So a lot of times when you're dehydrated, et cetera, and your urine sodium is like 15, we're not going to do like one eighth normal saline. So, it, so this is mostly a thing once they're euvolemic and they're, and they're, di- and they're like maybe over-diuresing. Is that correct? Yeah, I usually use it in a situation of polyuria where I'm trying to decide in a patient that has higher ongoing fluid needs because they have quite a bit of urine output, um, what to match them with. Um, in a situation where you have an appropriately low urine sodium because you are holding on to everything in the setting of volume depletion, you're just going to want to bolus with isotonic fluids. Um, keep it simple. Don't wait for that urine sodium to come back. Um, just bolus them. Um, and then use your urine sodium if you're trying to kind of titrate your fluid um, kind of after the fact. That is a fun pearl. I also imagine Sam getting a urine sodium, explaining this to the residents, and then the nurse saying, still still just got an S, man. (laughs) I can see it too, Justin. I can see it so too. It's perfect. It'll be like, it's okay. Michelle told me that it's going to be all right, you know? Yeah, it'll be bad. We'll keep watching. It's like, I mean, we do this a lot with our Disney Tremias, right? Like, we do all of our math. We do all of this fancy math, and we're like, it's so much fun math. I love doing the math. I do the math every single time and then i'm like okay normal sailing right like <laughs> do uh, all you do all the math and then you say i mean really you start a therapy and then you check the sodium in four hours and you say yeah. do i need to change what i'm doing um yeah. so i think you know i think that's really the point of this is that you know as long as you choose an approach you have a plan to assess your approach and then change your therapy if need be don't worry, Sam, you're not going to get in trouble. Thank you. I appreciate that. The, the vote of confidence. <laughs> I think that's a, a great positive spot to end on. And so, Michelle, maybe as a final question, any other take-home points for our listeners or things that you'd like to plug, resources you think our listeners should check out? Any final final words for the listeners? So I said it about a thousand times, but you know, it's important to think about fluids as a drug and think about them as an important decision and not just an afterthought. 
So thinking about both what are you giving and how much are you giving is really important. And it's okay to think seriously about those things and take a little bit of time. It doesn't need to be an automatic decision and it doesn't need to be done in 10 seconds. Um, So it's okay to be thoughtful about your fluids. And it's also okay to ask why and to question people when they um, either give you resistance or they have strong um, feelings about IV fluids because usually they are opinion-based and not evidence-based, I would say. And other resources or any uh, anything you'd like to plug, anything that we should send our listeners to? Yeah. So NEFSIM is a mobile-friendly website that is case-based um, and has a lot of great resources for trainees of kind of all stripes. So all the way from medical students up through faculty um, about how to interpret labs. Uh, They have a really nice section on fluid management and fluid disorders that I think would be really interesting for the listeners to look at. This is great. I feel like I've heard about it, but there's even educators guide, there's calculators, there's how to spin urine, a urine gallery, which is really a great way to get people excited. So... Uh, this is great. So they have they have a lot of cases. Um, so I actually find this an incredibly helpful resource um, when people are doing afternoon teaching or teaching on rounds and just need either a case scenario or something quickly to go through. Um, and I think they have a handful of fluid cases um, that are kind of relevant to what we talked about today. Uh, this is great. Awesome. So what a great resource. This is great. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Again, a very hyped topic that I think this is going to be slam dunk. We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate your wonderful energy, expertise, and thank you again for, for sharing it with us here at the Cribsiders. Absolutely. It was my pleasure to talk about all things kidney and nerdy. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. <laughs> Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any podcast player. You can also email us anytime at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our showrunner for this episode and all of our episodes, Dr. Sam Mazur, and to our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, on Facebook. Thanks for joining tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Chris, that you met you. Thank you. Good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.